We're going to take off on 1 John, so grab your Bibles. I'm sure you've got them at home or your phones or whatever you want to do, but we're in our study on 1 John. We are now entering the fifth chapter, so we've gone through most of the book. And the last, the fifth chapter is the last chapter of the epistle, and John is going to be wrapping up his arguments. He's going to be bringing them home. Uh, But before we do that, let's just do a really quick review of last week. Uh, we're moving along in our series, and, and many of you have commented uh, how powerful this series has been for you, and I agree. There's just been an unusual sense of the Holy Spirit uh, speaking through the whole series, and I think for that we can all be grateful. Last week we saw it was not just a matter of knowing, but a matter of knowing and believing, or the other word we tied to that was relying, uh, putting our weight down on it. And if we know and rely... Then what John says is we purify ourselves because he, God, is pure. We also saw literally that whether the vessel, our lives, was the picture for, whether the vessel is clean or not makes a huge difference if Jesus can use it. And that purity gives us confidence that we won't shy away at his coming. And what we said was if we're not clean, what our tendency is is to flinch or cower every time the Lord approaches us, and we said we can't do that. That yes, Jesus loves us, but we also must love Him. That when He comes and approaches us, we've got to approach Him as well. Believing that Jesus was the Christ and both fully God and fully human is John's measuring line for who has faith and who doesn't. And now we come to chapter 5, where John takes all of his ideas and he, he kind of brings them home in a thunderous conclusion. Uh, This is one of the clearest chapters in the Bible for the claims of Christ. It has been used in apologetics, and apologetics, uh, kids, if you're wondering what that word is, it's it's just a fancy word for meaning the defense of the church, all right? Uh, But it's been used since John's time, and it has not weakened or lost its effectiveness over the last 2,000 years. It's It's an absolute privilege to walk through this chapter together. So before we do, let's stop and pray and seek the heart of our Father in heaven. I actually wrote this out this morning. I'm going to read it uh, because I gave some thought to how to pray for this morning. And Would you join me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name and hallowed be your purpose. We pray this morning that as it is in heaven, so it will be on earth. We have come to one of the great witness chapters, the writings of your beloved friend John. We pray that you would give us what we need today, for only you totally and wholly know what is really going on in your kingdom and in our world and where that intersects. Lord, give us a heart to forgive those who have sinned and wounded our hearts. Please be merciful to us as we have done this to others. May you clear and protect our minds today from Satan's whispers and lies and distractions. Give us a mind and heart that both knows you and relies on you, and we ask this in your name. And we all say, Amen. Well, 1 John starts with this. Looking at verse 1, it says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, the Savior, that Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves 
whoever has been born of him. Eternal life is the promise for those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one of God. John has been hammering this through the whole epistle and he brings it home one more time. And it's not just against the Gnostics that they're talking about, but it's against all the other religions. This is brand new and popping out. Uh, they, first time they'd ever heard of Jesus. And so John is talking about anchoring in that and John's hammering this home. And John's also, when we think about this, it's important to realize he's not the only apostle to emphasize this. Paul emphasized the same things. Look at Romans 10, and it reads like this. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For from the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who will call on him. And here's the great promise for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul says that it's this word of faith that he's proclaiming. Paul is stressing the same kind of faith that John's talking about. Jesus is still looking for those who will call out to him to save them. And John said we are to know and believe, fully rely on that promise. I, I have to know that, he claimed, that what he claimed about himself, this would be the Lord Jesus, and I have to trust what he said is true, and I must wholly rely on him. I must put my faith, my believing weight down on him, and let him hold me for eternity. And what's the great promise? Well, anyone who trusts in him will not be put to shame. In other words, anybody who calls out to Jesus, reaches out to him, says, Lord, I'm in desperate shape. I need you to save me. Nobody's ever going to be made fun of. He's never going to mock you. He's never going to say, your circumstances should have been better. Your timing was lousy. You should have got that right. That's, and there's none of that there. It says, anyone who calls on the name will be saved. Uh, Peter says the same thing. So we see John saying this. We see uh, Paul saying this, now we see Peter saying this. Peter says this in 1 Peter verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded, and notice the phrase here, being guarded through what? Through faith, are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, then we are guarded through that faith. We're protected, we're covered, we're sheltered by the Holy Spirit, who is otherwise known as the Spirit of Truth. So the goal is to love Jesus with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. And then here comes the second part, which is no stranger to us at this point. We know this. The second half of verse 5 or verse 1 says this, And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. If we love God, then we must love his kids as well. 
Again, John got this from Jesus. John just didn't pull this out of thin air. He got this from the Lord himself. Jesus said, if we love them, then we'll keep his commandments. Well, what are his commandments? Look with me in John 13, looking at verse 34 and 35. Jesus is talking, and he's saying to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Notice it isn't a great suggestion. It's actually a commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Why is that so significant? Well, what it tells us is that the telltale signature imprint or sign of Jesus being among us is our ability to love one another. Any wonder why Satan goes so hard after that? It does get tested, doesn't it? John 15, Jesus says this again. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. And Jesus here is about to demonstrate how powerful his love for the disciples, for the world, for us is. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. See, when you come into a relationship with Jesus, he he calls you his friends. He calls you his children. And if that weren't enough, Jesus triples down on this and admonishes the same thought again in John 15, 17. He says this, These things I command you so that you will love one another. In other words, the goal of all the being good stuff and the goal of doing the things right stuff and the goal of that is so that there would be an environment where we could actually love one another. Jesus here repeats the same instruction three times. John has said the same thing in this short epistle at least five times. And the question we have to ask is, why? And the answer is because it's his, God's, unique revelation about himself. Because, as we said, it's the signature imprint of the Father's presence with us. It's his defining characteristic. It is his glue for us. It's what holds us together. And when you think about it in the whole scope of the story of Scripture as we know it, this is exactly what the rebellion in the heavenly realm and among the divine council wrecked. This is what Satan is trying to destroy. And we are not immune to his tactics or his schemes. And that's why God keeps love as a target, both towards him and each other in front of us. Nine times out of ten... God reminds us of what we already know. Isn't that true? Faith keeps us acting in love even when everything else around us is falling apart. In other words, we need to respond in love this week even though VBS got canceled and even though we aren't going to camp and even though we aren't even able to be in church this morning, we have to love each other. We get to love each other. We can do that in spite of all that stuff not happening. We can still love each other. That love is engaged. That love is activated by our faith. Faith keeps us acting in love even when, I said, everything else around us is falling apart. Look how John ties this all together. In 1 John, we'll look at chapter, verses 2 and 3 here. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey His commandments, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, 
and his commandments aren't burdensome. The commentaries point out that many are stunned and puzzled when they first read this, thinking it should read this way. By this we know that we love God when we love his children and obey his commandments. But that is not how it reads. It reads like this. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. What is, what's going on here? Why did John word it that way? John is anchoring and reminding himself of what he wrote in chapter 4. Do you remember chapter 4? He says this. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brother also. In other words, love goes this way, but love also goes this way. And if it doesn't go this way, then it doesn't work this way either. We are, as I said, relationally consistent. This isn't the only place this is laid out for us. Paul writes almost the exact same thing in the book of Romans. Look at Romans 13. Paul says this, Oh, uh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any of the other commandments are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Do you think the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate something here? Do you see the layering of that? That it's just spread all throughout the whole New Testament? Now, there is one little phrase that we dare not overlook, and it's this. It's tagged on to the end of that passage in John, in uh, verse 3. It says, and his commandments are not burdensome. Some of you are sitting there this morning, and just now you said in your spell, to yourself, said, see, this just proves that God doesn't get it, and he's just a bit out of touch, a bit daft. Some of you wives are sitting there thinking, ha, easy for God to say. Have you tried living with my husband? Good Lord, that man is impossible. And some of you husbands are sitting there thinking the same thing. Are you kidding me? Love her? Why, a box of bricks would be easier to love than her. And some of you parents are thinking, that is not possible with our kids. This is definitely not leave it to beaver. And some of you kids are thinking, these are the parents God picked for me? Why doesn't he come down and live with them for a while? And my neighbors. God, have you tried to live with my neighbors? Why don't you have them for your neighbors and see how well it goes for you? What are we saying when we say that kind of stuff? We're saying, nice idea, but not really practical. Not in, not in a real kind of real life sort of way. Not, not, not in my world. It, not how it works. How in the world is this love to love people who irk you, to love people who bug you, to love people who aren't perfect? As a matter of fact, the longer you live with them, the less perfect you realize they are. How does this love practically work out? Well, it's burdensome or not burdensome, but it really depends on your perspective. Have you read the Gospels lately? Have you watched what Zeb Fenimore, our junior high director, calls the way of Jesus? 
This way forgives even when his enemies are nailing him to a cross. What did Jesus say? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. One of the most mind-blowing ideas in the whole New Testament is that some of the people who put Jesus on the cross will be in heaven. Think about that for a second. That is an astonishing love. When Peter uh, came to Jesus, remember he asked Jesus the question, and the question was, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother? And, and he wanted to put a tag on it, so he said as many as seven times, like that would be pretty extreme, right? What was Peter stating there? He was stating the burden. My brother keeps sinning at me, like poor Andrew, right? <laughs> but how many times do I got to forgive this dude? Like, like seven? It's a burden. It's hard. They're never going to change. I'm sure Peter thought he had gone way beyond the limits of being reasonable at this point. But that's not what Jesus said. What did Jesus say? 70 times seven. That sounds outrageous to us. But what was Jesus doing? Jesus was matching his father's heart against our heart. And there's really not much of a comparison. Let me see if I can make this uh, land for us. Okay, I know you're sitting at home. I know uh, you're probably in your couch or sofa or sitting around. Uh, maybe you're doing something. This would be a great place to cue in. It would be a great place to give me your attention. 70 times 7 is 490 times. All right, if you add it up. That's a lot of times to forgive somebody. <clears throat> How many times do I have to keep doing that? Well, do you want to stop this argument really quickly? We can do it with one question. And the question is this. How many times do you think the Lord has already forgiven you? How many times do you think the Lord has already forgiven you? I will bet. Well, I know for sure with me. But I will bet. It's way more than 500 times. So it should be with our hearts. We must learn to forgive from the heart. Why? Because God forgives from the heart. If we want to be like God, then we have to forgive like God. <clears throat> I want to say something here because this gets taken advantage of, um, and I want to speak a word to abusers here. I don't know who I'm talking to, but I'm talking to somebody. There are some who will use this message, this type of thinking, to their advantage and throw it in the face of their victims and say, you have to forgive me. And they use it so they can continue their abuse. To such a person, I say you have totally missed the point of this message because the point of this message is love does no harm to its neighbor. You are not only violating those close to you, but you are violating the word of God and you are violating the spirit of the Lord Jesus himself. You are twisting scripture to your own advantage and not to the advantage of Jesus or his kingdom. And to you I say, repent of this wickedness and make straight the way of the Lord. If you do not and you secretly keep going on with a stubborn and twisted heart, then hear me clearly. I pray that the Lord takes your life and I pray that he takes you home.
God will not be mocked. You will have to answer for that kind of behavior. Turn in repentance to him and start loving the way he loves, not the twisted, mean, controlling, power-broken way that our world loves. As a matter of fact, this is a great word for all of us to turn and repent and learn to love the way the Lord Jesus does. But back to the question. All right, I off a rabbit trail there, sorry. But is it burdensome? Is this just a heavy backpack to carry? Like we walk around just the weight of the Lord. Uh, Only when you do it in your own strength. Look at what John says, verses 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. He's going to lay it out here. What's the victory? Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? What makes the burden bearable? Our faith. And it's all through Scripture. Again, this is not what's so popular today is, uh, I have faith. What do you have faith in? I have faith in faith. No. Gong. Thanks for playing. All right? This is not faith in faith. This is faith in the risen and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And that faith helps us love others. Why? Because he first loved us. As, he taught, as, as he's loved you, just think about how kind the Lord has been to you. Can we not be kind to others? In what sense is it overcoming? Certainly, when you look at Jesus' life, it didn't look like he was winning at that time. And stretch that 2,000 years to the present, it certainly doesn't look like he's winning today either. In what way, then, does our faith overcome the world? This is really important. You know, the question we come, why isn't Jesus more like the Avengers, right? Just more immediate. Like, why can't we see something blow up and know that God's behind it and hammer and, you know, bonk the bad guys and, you know, the old Batman, pow, you know, kind of thing. How come we, we don't see that? Why isn't he more immediate? And here's the answer. Faith realizes that this isn't the only arena. Faith realizes this, where you're at this morning, is not permanent. Faith realizes there's far more at play in the spiritual realm than we can possibly see or comprehend. Faith says this is not all there is. Faith says our reward is not down here. Faith realizes I must learn to overcome evil with good, mostly the evil within my own heart. Faith realizes that to pursue and desire God, I have to be willing to suffer. Faith realizes that to overcome, I must pick up my cross daily. It's not a weekly or a monthly or a six-month exercise. It's daily. Faith realizes I must trust God even when it seems like He isn't near. Faith realizes I must confess Christ in all circumstances. Faith realizes that ultimately God will conform everything in the universe to His will. Faith realizes I must trust him no matter what. And faith realizes that my only way into his kingdom 
is through my faith in him, the Lord Jesus Christ. John rhetorically asks, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And that belief must be as strong today as it had to be in John's day. Remember, John's church was under pressure too. We're not the first generation to face pressure. We must stand strong in our faith today as they had to stand strong in their faith back then. Is faith in Jesus under attack today? Absolutely. Everything is aimed at shutting down the church and the people of faith. We irritate them. We bother them. Okay? We're a problem. Will it get bad? Yes, it will. And that's why Jesus asked the question, when he returns... Will he find any faith on earth? I want you to notice something. That's an open question. In other words, that's not a prediction. That's not a prophecy. It's a question by Jesus that's open. Hey, when I come back, will I find anything? And obviously, the hope on his part is that he would. So let's answer that question with yes. Let's answer the question, when Jesus comes back, yes, he will find faith on this planet, and he will find faith here at Northview. He will find a whole group of people believing, we hope in a lot of places, but we hope here that we'll be putting their faith in him and overcoming the stuff that the world is throwing at us. Let us be overcomers. Let us be people of faith. Come, Lord Jesus, amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, It's your life, it's your power, not us. Lord, our faith is incredibly important. We seek you this morning. We ask, through all these trying circumstances we had this week, that's really hard. It's really been hard on our kids, really hard on our students, really hard on the helpers. And yet, that doesn't mean you haven't been around and it doesn't mean you're not working. Help us look for where you are. Help us look for your kingdom in our present circumstances. Lord, the great ask this morning, a lot of us have loves, but we know we're not very good at loving. Lord, help us to learn to love the way you love. Teach us how to love that way. May we overcome. May we overcome for you. And may our love for each other here at Norfew be the signature imprint to our community around us that your resurrection is true and that you're coming back. We seek you for that in your name. And all God's people said at home, amen.